our series, this is the end of it, Faithcation, kind of a fun, campy way of, of uh, make, you know, having some fun with the whole idea of, of not, not disengaging on, in your faith or on your faith in, in your vacation, or your summer vacation. Obviously, we're in the middle of August, or excuse me, middle of, uh, we're approaching August. Some of you already had your vacation, so what does this apply to? I'm really just sort of making this, stretching it, taking a little more, a little more liberties with it. Just the slower summer months, as so often they are around here. Maybe that's not the way it is for you, but for, for, for many it is. And uh, just to take some, maybe some initiatives to stop and to think about something to do um, that can really help me in my walk, in my faith journey, my walk with, uh, with who Christ is in my life. And um, that's the whole concept, the whole thinking behind this series. And we've talked about many different things, but today the theme is about getting refueled and rested in every way, but especially in, this, in our spiritual and emotional lives, which are so closely connected. So, understanding that, I want, we're going to talk about that refueling today and, and the resting and, and what all that means. And um, this, is a, this, is, this can be a hard concept for some to grasp, so I'm going to try to make it as, uh, as uh, practical as I can, as I always like to do, of course. Here's what I've decided to do. I'm taking you to a, to a guy in the Old Testament, a prophet, kind of the Old Testament, classic prophet, preacher. His name was Elijah. Elijah was a gutsy guy, and he was a prophet during the time, among others, of a very evil king and queen over Israel, um, technically Judah, southern Israel, but for our purposes we'll just say Israel. A guy by the name of Ahab was king. They wrote a song about him. Ray, Ray Stevens wrote a song about him later on. Maybe you've heard of it, Ahab the Arab. You ever hear that song? No. Choop. Um, uh, it was uh, actually it was a very popular song for a while. Did you ever play that song, Jimmy? Yeah, you've heard it. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and, then, and then he had a wife, and her name was Jezebel. Now, you say, you know, I don't know that much about the Old Testament, Rich, but I, I'll bet you... That, that that person, Jezebel, wasn't really a good person, right? Because <laughs> not too many of us are naming our daughters Jezebel. And uh, I'm not sure, I shouldn't say this, because every time I do this, somebody comes and tells me, I know somebody, or it's my daughter. Um, but I don't think I've ever known anybody named their daughter Jezebel. Okay? Now, if you're the exception to that rule, I'm sure your parents had something entirely different in mind, so don't, don't be offended. Ahab and Jezebel were bad. I mean, they were bad. They worshipped idols. Idols of the day were uh, Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal, uh, Ashtoreth was the female counterpart of Baal. And, and, and without going into great detail on the idolatry of the time, you know, this isn't just like worshipping a totem pole. This is worshipping gods who demanded things like child sacrifice. Um, this was some awful, awful stuff. Ahab and Jezebel were, were promoting that kind of worship. Elijah, the great man of God, was saying, that's wrong. You should worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, that's the God of Israel. That's who should be. And he, keeps, and he makes them so mad that they're looking for him at this point in the narrative that we're going to see. They're looking for him. They want to kill him because they don't want, you know, they could do that then. Just kill him. I don't want to hear him anymore. All right? So, so Elijah just shows up, and he confronts Ahab, and uh, watch what happens. This is pretty cool. 
Um, he thinks it's time to challenge Ahab and the people to move and to get right with God, the, the true God, not all this idol worship stuff. So we go to 1 Kings chapter 18. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you? This is, a, this is Ahab talking to, his, to, to Elijah. So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commandments of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. This is like the most powerful man in that world at the time. And this is Elijah saying, I'm not a troublemaker, you're the troublemaker because you're an idol worshiper. I mean, that takes some... That takes some I can't say, I say gutzpah, and I, all my Jewish friends say, I don't know how to say gutzpah, but anyway, that takes some fortitude, let me just say it that way, all right? Um, to be able to say, hey, no, man, you, could, you have the ability to kill me, but I don't care, you're wrong. You're worshiping false gods, and it hurts people, and you need to clean up your act, as do the people. Now, watch what happens here. Elijah says to him in verse 19, now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashtra, his female counterpart, who are supported by Jezebel. He said, I want all these idol-worshiping priests to come and meet me on this mountain, on Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a little come to Jesus, so to speak, figuratively speaking. All right? And, and, here's what, and then he tells him what he's going to do. Verse, verse 20. Well, watch how he does it. Uh, so Ahab, Ahab, he does it. He summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and he said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. But the people were completely silent. Isn't this good? Elijah says, You know what, guys? Some of you have had one foot in and one foot out for way too long. Either, Either come and follow the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, the true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or if you want to worship your idols, go worship your idols. But don't do, try to do both. You know, sometimes it's interesting in any... So even in Renaissance, sometimes we have people... I mean, every service, every, every Sunday, there are people who just aren't quite sure. And we, wanna, we really want them to be here. We really do. If you're in that situation, we're honored that you would uh, come to church here. But there also comes a time when everyone needs to be challenged. You know what? It's time. It's time to step over that line of faith and put your trust in Christ. And you have to determine where you are in that whole process. But uh, that's, that's what's happening here. It's something you can think about in terms of what we're doing here. So he does that. They all are completely silent. And then he says, here's what he's going to do. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting it on fire for the sacrifice. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord." The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and all the people agree. So it, it, it's kind of like a contest. I mean, it, it, there's not many other words that will describe it. You guys set up your altar with your, with your sacrifice. I'll set up my altar with my sacrifice, and we'll ask our God to set it on fire. Just ask Him to ignite the thing. 
So I'll, we're gonna, I'm not going to go through all the, there's a lot, there's a lot to read, and I would encourage you to go back and read it. Um, I'll give you the quick narrative. Basically, the prophets of Baal, they do, ever, they do all kinds of shenanigans. They're jumping up and down. They're turning over their heads. They're doing, they're doing flips. They're cutting themselves, literally, doing all kinds of things, begging Baal to set their sacrifice on fire. Nobody does. He's not at home. It doesn't happen. By the way, while he's doing that, it's kind of a fun part of the story. Elijah kind of goes around, kind of taunts them a little bit, kind of chides them a little bit. He's my kind of guy, you know. He's a little bit of a trash talker. Because he's like, he's like, hey, no luck, huh? You're not setting that on fire, huh? That's because your God ain't got nobody at home, you know. And and he, and he even says, oh, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. You know, he goes, he says all kinds of fun stuff, and, and nothing happens. And and so they say, okay, it's your turn. So he has them pour water repeatedly, pour water on the sacrifice, and then he says, God, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, strike it with, you know, make it light up. Boom! Out of the sky, it lights up. The whole thing is just, you know, all, 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 and the people are like, oh, my goodness. He does serve the true God. Funny, funny side story. I've told this story before, but it's okay. Some of you may have missed it. Um, my first church is in Birmingham, Alabama, and we were, we were doing a church camp. And I, I, you know, at that point, I'm like 30 years old. Don't, don't, don't put me in charge of a church camp, okay, because crazy stuff happens. I didn't know this was going on. The youth guys did it. Even, even at that age, and even as silly and crazy as I am, I would not have approved of this. I didn't know they did it. They were telling this very story to the kids. It was a nighttime thing. And they had a big, just, they just had one big, like a bond, ready-to-be-lit bonfire. And they were illustrating the story, saying, and eh, all the prophets of Baal were saying, set it on fire, set it on fire, nothing happened. And then they, the little kids came across, and they said, and then, and then they said, God, the God of Abraham, I lighted on fire. And all of a sudden, it went, the thing just went, boom, like that, just, whoom. Just in total, they had put, when they, they, when they were pouring what they thought was water, they, they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what they were doing. They had, in, in the quote-unquote water that they were pouring on it, they had put gasoline. And, and so when they lit this match from somebody behind it, they said, God, light it on fire. The guy behind it, it went boom, like that. And I'm like, holy, you know, I thought we were going to lose a couple kids. And um, that, it was kind of, I would never, just so you know, I would never approve of that, even, even then or now. And at the time, I went and I said, who in the world did this? And I never did find out. But, but the point is, it's a great illustration. That's exactly what happened. It was like it had been doused with uh, gasoline instead of water. And when Elijah says, God, light it on fire, it went boom. You know, the whole thing, it just lit up like that. Amazing. So all the people there, all of Israel are like, wow, this is great. He is the God, and, and they turned as they would in those days. Keep in mind, primitive culture. They turned on the prophets of Baal. They killed every one of them um, because they realized then that they were teaching stuff and doing stuff that was extremely wrong and destructive and killing children and all kinds of other stuff. So that's what happened. Now I'll take you back to the text. Abraham, excuse me, Abraham, Ahab, Ahab goes home. Back to uh, verse nine, chapter 19, verse 1 of Kings. Ahab got home. He told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. He didn't do it, but he was overseeing it. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you have killed them. Now this goes to Elijah. This is Elijah who has just taken on literally the whole known world at that time, basically all the 
false idol-worshiping people and their 450 prophets, the king Ahab, who could have him put to death. What, is it, what, is, what does Elijah do when he gets this threat? Look what happens. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba. It's a long ways down, several miles, about 100 miles. And we're talking people on foot now, okay? Uh, he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And this is, I mean, this is, this is the Negev. This is, this is really wilderness. It's just nothing but rocks and, and sand, and, and there's no vegetation. I've seen it. It's for miles. There's no water. There's no vegetation. It's just, it's just nothing. I mean, you get, you, you get out there, and you don't have supplies. You're dead. I mean, you're just dead within, within a matter of days. It's still like that to this day. So my point is this. He's ready to to go home. He's ready to end it all. He's so down. Keep in mind, he just had this humongous victory at Mount Carmel. He just had this great spiritual high, so to speak. I mean, just really doing, and he's just really seeing God bless. And and all all of a sudden now he's like, he's he's in the valley. You ever have that happen? You, you, you had some really big something going on, a big deal, or if you're a student, a big test, or, or some big accomplishment, you got through it, and then within 24 hours or 48 hours after you get through it, you get through it successfully, and everything just came together wonderfully, and then all of a sudden, within 24, 48 hours, you're down. You're just, you're just spent. I've had that happen many times. That's what's happening here. He's like, oh, no, no, I'm just, you know. He's, he's going into the desert basically to die. Well, God wasn't going to let him do that. He, in verse 3, he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went on alone in the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and, and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. I mean, he is really down. In the meantime, God sends an angel supernatural thing. It happened in those days. He sent an angel who brought food and water. He would have gotten it no other way. So he got up, verse 8, and he ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. That's, that's, all, that's all the way into Egypt, folks. You're talking another couple hundred miles. It's a long ways. 40 days, 40 nights, he got up, ate and drank, and so forth, to the mountain of God, that's Mount Sinai. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. He's still not doing well. He has reached what we would call today burnout. he got nothing left. And I don't know if you know much about burnout, but I can tell you a little bit about it. It, it, it affects your judgment. It affects your mood. It uh, sometimes causes you, I mean, I'm not blaming burnout because we still make our own choices, but sometimes causes you um, um, to make decisions or to, to sometimes choose wrong things that you wouldn't normally choose. Chooses you to, it may be the cause of, of you going into an area in your mind where you shouldn't go. Obviously, you're still responsible. We're not blaming the disease or the condition or whatever it is, you're still responsible. But it can affect people in many, many ways. That's why you individually have to have what it takes to confront that. He didn't at this point. But it can do, some, it can do, some, it can do a number on you. Even to people who are strong and tough, it can do a number on you. 
cause you to duck and dodge and not deal with your own issues and blame others and other circumstances, other stuff. That's what he's going through. So he goes on in, came to that cave where he spent the night. Look what happens. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Just, just a haunting question. Elijah, what are you doing here? I don't know what else God may have said to him. I mean, all the great stuff you've done, Elijah, why are you here? Hundreds of miles from where you had this great victory just a few days ago? Depressed, lonely, looking basically, if not to commit suicide, just let yourself die, some form of that. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, watch this. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of this is really some self, uh, self-centered stuff here. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. They hadn't. But he was spinning. He felt that way. They, there were still some prophets alive. But he was, it's kind of like we say, oh, God, I, I, I can, you know, nobody, here, nobody here likes me. Well, that's not true. You may feel that way. That's what he's saying. He said, they've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. What's he doing? It's all about me. That's what burnout does to you. It's all about me. Well, watch this. This is God talking. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Just a gentle whisper. One one translation says, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood before the entrance of the cave. God dealt with people in different ways at that time, but then God gives him instructions. I'm not as much concerned about those as to what happened here. Here's the issue, folks. God speaks to us still in that gentle whisper, that still, small voice. It's hard to hear in the uproar. It's hard to hear when all the hoo-ha is going on all around us. But God still speaks to us in that gentle whisper or that still, small voice. He still does. The second thing I want to tell you about that is the great insights that we get about God usually come in the quiet. The great insights that we get about God usually come in the quiet. Those, those, those quiet, quiet times. Thirdly, that's why you must make this time of quiet a mandate. You must make it a mandate for your life. Because I'll tell you something, you can't afford the price that you will have to pay if you don't have that. You can't afford the price of, of not thinking, the price of 
of going in a different direction than where God would have you, the price of allowing burnout to come into your life where your values and your judgments are so totally affected because you've gotten your eyes all off, off of everything that you need to have them on, which is the Lord, and on yourself and your circumstances instead. Guys that have spoken to me a lot, not in person because I've only read them, but about this whole subject being contemplative or this quiet, this time of quiet. Guys by the name of uh, Andre Nowen, and he, he's got a lot of writing, a lot of books on this, but here's one thing he said that I thought was especially significant. A life without a quiet center easily becomes destructive. When we cling to the results, this is really key, when we cling to the results of our actions as our only way of self-identification, then we become possessive and, dis- and defensive, and we tend to look at our fellow human beings more as enemies to be kept at a distance than as friends with whom we share the gifts of life. Like that, a life without a quiet sinner easily becomes destructive, and when we cling to the results of our actions as our only way of self-identification, we become possessive and defensive. It's really the difference in understanding about who we are as opposed to just what we do. Listen, the calling of Christ for us is to be the person that God wants us to be as a result of who we are as we trust in who Christ is and what He has done for us and gives us the opportunity of knowing the Lord God and His grace. That's a matter of being. That's a matter of who we are, not what we do. And we get so screwed up because we live in a, we live in a society that's so results-oriented. And it's all about what we do or don't do as opposed to who we are, when the who we are drives what we do or don't do. It's backwards. We get it backwards in our world. And, and the Bible teaches us over and over again, it's a matter of who you are, and that's going to drive what you do. You know, we can manage sinful actions. We can, we can get people to quit doing this or quit doing this and start doing this, but unless we deal with the core issue of who you are in Christ and trusting Him, we're not going to really deal with the core. We're not going to deal with, with the meat of the matter. So here's what I did with this. Think about those three things real quick. God speaks to us still in the gentle whisper, in the still small voice. The great insights that we get about God usually come from those times of quiet. That's why we must make a time of quiet a mandate in our lives. Eleven years ago, really started actually probably a year before that, uh, I had resigned. This is kind of personal, but stick with me a minute. I had resigned at the church where I'd been pastor in Colorado for 17 years, I think, 17 or 18 years. I had hit burnout. It took two years of good, sound biblical therapy for me to figure that out, but I had hit burnout. That's why I can speak with a little bit of authority about it. And I put myself under a mentor um, who I trusted, and great man of God, Strong, strong believer in the Bible and, and who Christ is and so forth. And, uh, and so I said, yeah. He said, you got to do whatever I'm going to tell you to do without telling me what that is. <laughs> I said, okay. That was a mess. I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices. I probably did, but I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices. He said, one thing I want you to do is I want you to take a, a, a silent retreat. And I'm like, that doesn't sound too good to me. Silent retreat. I said, what's a silent retreat? He said, you go, you go somewhere alone, you walk, 
Talk to God. Take your Bible, notebook, nothing else, no computer, no cell phone. And uh, you can't talk to anybody except God. And I was like, I love God, but this doesn't sound too much fun to me. He said, you got to do it. I said, for how long? He said, well, five days. I said, two days. <laughs> we agreed on four days. And um, I just found recently as I was cleaning some stuff up in my office, my, my, I, had, I, had a, I could write. That's all I could do, you know, looking at my handwriting. I can hardly read. So I had, was my, this was the journal from my first quiet, silent retreat. Albuquerque, New. I found a, found a monastery in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I, went, I was in Colorado, and we were looking at different places, and we found this one. And, and you know, the, the Catholics, God bless them, they, they really do understand this contemplative thing and many times encourage that, which is a, I, I, I applaud them for it. So we found this monastery in, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's almost exactly 11 years ago to the date. It's the middle of July. So you think you've been dealing with heat? Let me take you to Albuquerque, New Mexico in the middle of July. Um, so I found this, uh, this monastery, went there, I started reading through my journal, and I, I start off with, boy, this is hard, and uh, I, about every 12 hours for the first three days, boy, this is hard, boy, this is hard. Um, anyway, I read through that whole thing, and then this is something that just, I wrote one night, um, I got 7-17-2000, it may have been 16, it may have been 18, uh, the date, but uh and I called it Rich's Prayer. And it's, I just want to show you, this is just an example. I'm nothing magical about the prayer, but it's just, it's just an example. Sometimes when we spend this time with God, some of the things, some of the places we go in a really good, positive way. And um, it was one of those things for me that was amazing. And I've done it since, of course, and, and it's, uh, it was amazing. But this is a prayer that I wrote one night, sort of a prayer, sort of a dialogue I had with God. And I didn't hear any voices that still small voice, you know, that, that, that gentle whisper. And, and I wrote this, and it's kind of personal, but I'll share this with you. I said to the Lord, teach me your grace and love. The Lord said to me, are you sure you can handle this lesson? It doesn't come easy. I said, bring it on, Lord. I'm a tough guy. I can handle it. The Lord said, okay, tough guy, but first let me teach you brokenness and humility. Let me show you, you have not a shred of righteousness to cling to. Let me allow you to experience shame and guilt and condemnation. Then, my dear Rich, then you might begin to understand, like never before, my unconditional love for you, my unlimited grace for you that you now so clearly understand is so undeserved. Learn that lesson and share it with everyone you can. P.S. Sorry about all the pain, but I know you. Without it, you wouldn't get it. But Rich, my dear child, I do love you. I love you so much more than you even realize. Your Lord, God, and Father in heaven. You know, motion's still there from 11 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Um, You get great insights about God when you get in those quiet times. And that's usually about the only place you can get them. You may not have four days. 
Do you have, do you have three days, two days? Do you have a day? Do you have an hour that you can take regularly? You need this. You need this. Where you can get away. Whatever it is, wherever it, has to, wherever it can be. You don't have to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico. You don't have to go to a monastery. Maybe you get into a corner office where nobody else is. Maybe into a corner of the train where nobody else is. Maybe you get to a corner of the house or yard or, or somewhere else where nobody else is. But you need that. And you've got to have that. If you're going to have a healthy relationship with your God, with your Lord, with your Creator. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. He invites this. He invites this, he does. He invites us. It, it's pretty cool. He invites us, you know, whether, whether you've been a longtime person of faith or whether you're just now coming to realize who Christ is, he invites us. Here's how he invites us. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I tell you, the version that spoke to me most when I was reading this, and I read this a lot on that retreat that I told you about, was the message version. And it said this, same, same verses. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? That kind of hit me hard because I was burned out on religion. Not Jesus not a relationship with Christ, but religion. I was kind of burned out on religion. I was a pastor for a number of years at that point. You know, I love people, but sometimes people can drive you crazy. Sometimes people can drive a wooden man crazy, let's face it. Um, and I was kind of sick of religion, the whole religion thing, the whole religious deal. I still struggle with it from time to time. But I love that. That's why this version spoke to me. Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it, Jesus says. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. (laughs) I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says, come to me. That's for you and that's for me. That's for you. If you're a person of faith for a long time, that's for you. If, you. if you haven't crossed that line of faith yet, that's still for you. And that's why Jesus says it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. May God give us the ability to act upon that and live that out. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to think on these very important issues of life. Thank you for your love and for your grace displayed to each of us in so many different ways. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.